Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where it is you are listening. This is Dan Turchin, the host of AI and the Future of Work, here to present another fascinating discussion with a thought leader in the world of AI. Before we jump into today's discussion, let me just give a little bit of preamble here. It's day 39 by my count of the shelter in place. We're recording here from Santa Clara County, California. And I want to let you know that we all continue to ask the same questions. Uh, it's not just you. We're all a little scared, confused, anxious. We're ready to get back to restaurants and sporting events and even offices. But we're also apprehensive about what that will be like, with face masks and social distancing. We've been admonished by no other than the great Mark Andreessen to go out and build stuff. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. What it is we should build and who will use it and what they expect now and in the future workplace that we're all defining in real time. Today's guest is, is a perfect person to lead that discussion. Uh, Randy Womack is currently the CEO of Socrates.ai. But before that, he was involved in some other amazing organizations. He helped make Success Factors successful before it was acquired by SAP. He was the chief operating officer at Castlight Health. Randy's a consummate veteran of Silicon Valley. He's been in and around the world of enterprise software for about 30 years. Thank you to Brian Asher from Venrock for the introduction to Randy. With that said, Randy, welcome to the show. Give us a little bit about your back. Thanks, Dan. It's As always, it's a true pleasure to spend some time with you, so thank you. Um, I'm Randy Womack. I think you gave my background really well. I'm the CEO of Socrates.ai, and we're an employee experience platform. We've had a number of guests in the past that live in and around different parts of the world of AI. We've talked a little bit about employee experience and employee experience platforms. It means different things to different people. Talk more about what Socrates.ai does. Yeah, it's a really good question. So the the simplest way to think about it is when you go into large employers or the or the workplace, you know, we're often inundated with lots of different applications. So much of enterprise software was built departmentally or it's used in different places. And so like if you take a simple benefits app program in a large employer, it could be anywhere from 30 to 50 different software applications and services, much less multiple payrolls, ERPs, time management, all the things that, that you and I are familiar with in, in terms of work apps. And we ask a lot from the workforce and, and we offer a lot to the workforce, but for the individual to be able to experience those programs or platforms, it's crazy painful today. And, and the important part of it is that it's really important. I mean, how many times do you have a baby? How many times do you buy a new house? You know, how many times do you, help your daughter get depression. And that's just on the benefit side, you know, but, but taking something like having a baby, you can't do it in an ERP package, right? You can do parts of it, but you can't do all of it. So the thing that was important to us and the, and the founding mission of the company was very much to pull it all together, give everybody one place to go to ask any question that they want and get single, simple answers and at the same time perform any tasks. And so it's kind of that extension of single sign-on. We had that world where we couldn't remember our username and password to get into all these applications, but now we should have one place where the workforce goes and we're able to manage their employee experience. And employee experience for us is very much about personalizing and making it efficient 
we kind of define it in three categories. The first is you need one place to go. The second is it should absolutely save you time. It, you know, if everything we do in our consumer lives saves us time, and, and that's what an employee experience platform should do. And then the second category, or who are the company, or the third category is who are the companies that have survived Amazon? It's the experience, like the Lego stores. And so an employee experience platform should also enable you to create very meaningful experiences because you're dealing with somebody in the moment that matters and something that's very important to them. And so you have a lot more opportunity than just saying, hey, here's our policy. As consumers, we enter the workplace with expectations that we're going to get service like we get from Amazon or Netflix. And oftentimes the expectation is so different from the reality. How do we bridge the gap? But it's interesting, and, and that's part of being a platform. And, and like you said, the, the value of a platform and the value of the SaaS model is that we should all be facing this problem together and collaboratively, and it should be open. It shouldn't be about one single vendor. It should be optimizing for whatever technology or service is the best um, for the employee and being able to leverage it all. Both of the IT teams don't get limited by strategy, but also from the business leaders being able to pick and choose the things that are most effective in their culture and their organization. And so we do a lot of that processing for you. If you really sit down and start putting on the whiteboard and start mapping out, if I ask this question or want to perform this task, where does it come from? A ton of it is in documentation. It's in SharePoint. It's in, you know, all the different repositories. And, and that's changing, right? ServiceNow stuff's moving into it where before it was in SharePoint. You've got it in cases and in CRM packages. You've got applications that you've got structured data versus unstructured. You've got the world of bots today. There's lots and lots of bots. And a lot of those bots are really valuable. They just tend to be narrow and they tend to be command focused and they don't all speak the same language. Or you've got people that should be included in that equation. So when you really start looking at what a platform should accomplish from an employee experience platform, it should really do the work for you. Like we automatically process documents so that you can give employees one single answer from your policies, not here's a search bunch of documents, go open them and search inside and try and find your answer. And we also give them the ability to give simple, straightforward answers. Can I wear jeans on Friday? Yes, go for it or no, stay, stay business casual. So the, the idea behind the platform was to give people the ultimate IT flexibility, optimize for the employee experience by either pulling it all together, saving them time, or creating a really meaningful experience out of it. So this stuff can seem kind of academic or kind of abstract. Um, give us an example of a, of, a, of a specific customer you've helped. Yeah, I think I would probably say EW Scripts. I don't know if you know them. They own like 60 television scripts and they host the National Spelling Bees. You probably know them from that. Super impressive um, leader there named Kevin McDonald. Um, He's the head of their HRO operations. And and Kevin shared our vision and he pushed us really hard. Um, It was important to him that they had developed a mobile application. So he was super excited about the ability to give people single answers and very straightforward answers and be able to answer their questions versus policy, but still support it by policy. And But they didn't want to do it through a bot. They wanted to do it by supporting their mobile application and leveraging the investment they already had. The second thing that Kevin wanted was personalization. When people ask questions, make it about them, not about generic policy or, you know, if they ask what's our vacation balance, give it to them. If they turn around and ask what the withholding is, give it to them. And then we can talk about business cases that cross multiple applications, which is super important in play experience. 
And then the last thing is they have a super impressive IT group. In their IT group, it was important to them to leverage the things that they had already developed and use the tool sets and the packages and the development platforms that they were working in to be able to pull it all together. And so in their case, their mobile app is actually the point of entry for all employees. And, and we're the glue that helps them pull all that together in the background and, and process a lot of their documents and sort out the conflicts. I think the biggest lesson learned from them, other than them really challenging and influencing our core architecture, is that permissions are so tough. You know, it's never the core basic permissions, it's the exceptions. This, this, and this, but not this, this, and this. And so it was a great exercise and great experience for us. It really hardened us up, especially around permissions. Enterprises have a very complicated relationship with bots. We saw a wave of unbridled enthusiasm uh, a few years back, and then it waned. How do you get enterprise employees comfortable with the idea that they're going to receive better service from an automated bot? It's a brilliant question, and it's a brilliant question in two dimensions. Um, to me, a bot is just a technology interface. Right. The, the first question is that why can't we ask our company questions? Why can't we talk to our company? And I'll give you some examples when we build on that. Um, but the but the second part specifically to your question is that bots are really valuable. Right. There's no question that natural language interfaces. We tend to call those bots today can be super powerful. And one of the things our platform does is we allow you to have what we call assignable intents. So say, for instance, somebody wrote the shuttle schedule in Santa Clara for the office and they created a bot to do that, which understood natural language. Our platform would say, classify, this is about transportation. It's about transportation in Santa Clara. This is the bot that you should talk to. Another simple example is, let's say that we're doing ERP and Workday, right? Then make sure that we talk to the Workday bot or make sure that we talk to the ADP bot if we're doing payroll and ADP. And so for me, they're just a delivery mechanism that can be very rich and powerful. The problem with bots today is they tend to be narrow, very narrow. They don't support the same commands. They don't support the same languages. So you have the same problem from an employee experience point of view of, okay, what bot knows what and how do I speak to it and what's it going to actually give me? And that's the other thing that an employee experience platform should solve. So we've become a lot more comfortable in our personal lives asking Siri questions. And when we come to work and we're presented with a bot, A, um, we expect that, you know, this is a bit of a cliche in our space, but voice is the new app. And another cliche, but probably holds true, AI is the new UI. Now, you and I know that in the enterprise space, we're often dealing with what we call a small data problem, not a big data problem. How do you uh, how do you take to market employee experiences that deliver on the expectations employees have while taking into account the fact that Socrates.ai just doesn't have access to the, the volume of information that Apple or Google do? Yeah, so really smart question. So there's, there's two parts to it. The first, an employee experience platform shouldn't be promoting any single channel, whether you want to come SMS or whether you want to do Teams or Slack. You know, you got to go to where the workforce is. The second is you should choose what medium of delivery is best for the employee experience. So take, for example, if I ask a simple question, I got to get a straightforward answer. Whether it's unstructured data or structured data, I shouldn't be forced to go to SharePoint. I shouldn't be forced to go to Workday. I should be able to just ask my question and get an answer. Now, 
That's not necessarily true when it comes to complex business processes, such as offboarding an employee or onboarding an employee or terminating an employee. And you've built all, we've taken all this time and we've built these great workflows in this business logic in these systems of record. And, and it may be just take them to the system of record and get them to the right place. Or it may be launch something like a walk me digital, you know, walkthrough that, that actually makes it super simple for them. So the biggest difference in employee experience platform is that you're optimizing for what gives the most value to the employee, whether it's meaning or usually it's saving them time. But how do you make that the most effective experience for them possible? The second part of your question is, is that the, the, none of us can be Google or Microsoft or Amazon. We don't have those data sets. So, so in our mind, what we do in the platform to address that is that we are very deep in the domains that we approach. And the way that we get deep is not through normal, you know, kind of machine learning and processing of everything that's available. But the truth is it's a collaboration effort from all the customers. So every, it's a typical SaaS model, right? If you take the knowledge graphs that natural language processing is trying to use or leverage, um, and we all use different termini- terminology on those classification engines, you know, because you live it like I do. But at the end of the day, it should be collaborative, right? You should be leveraging the information that I'm generating, and I should be leveraging the information that you're generating. And that's what SaaS is all about. It should total be a total collaboration. And that's just not on how do we do the NLP processing, but it's also what employee experiences are working well, what aren't. What are employees asking that we don't have content for, we don't have answers for? Take, for instance, the crisis we're in at the moment. You know, I would say the biggest problem out there is getting information. And it's not just, it should be bi-directional. What is it that the workforce is asking that we have gaps in content on? And where are the gaps in content that we need to fill quickly and answer those questions and get it back out to that workforce in a simple, straightforward manner, not just, hey, we got a new policy that we're going to publish in six weeks, right? And, and so those are the types of things that when you start thinking from the workforce's experience, you start architecting things very differently than we did when we were very focused on departments. Makes sense. One of the things I've enjoyed about getting to know you is understanding your leadership philosophy. And one of the things that struck me early on is uh, you were advocating benefits of remote work before it was fashionable, before we were all working from home. Tell our audience a little bit about what, what, what you've learned over the years, uh, supporting remote teams, and what can they learn from your experiences? Yeah, I actually think there's brothers and sisters in that equation. And so what I mean by that is it's not just working from home, which are those of us that are employees, but it's also the freelance economy. Um, you know, that's something that, that people talked about five years ago that I think today is very real, right? And the freelance economy is a big part of our company as well. And, and so in addition to working from home, I would also emphasize the importance of, of the freelance economy and how it's changed the workforce. They, where they overlap in the Venn diagram is that it's very much optimizing for people's lifestyles. And, and, you know, you're not necessarily able to do that when you're forced to go to an office. And so let's take out introverts and extroverts out of that equation for a moment. And, and the, the people who tend to self-select into remote environments are people who are optimizing their lifestyles. And it's not necessarily because, hey, I want to make every one of my kids soccer games or basketball games. It might be that. But for instance, like our head of engineering, because we're global, 
right, has to work early mornings and he has to work late evenings. So for him to go into an office when it's the middle part of the day, when all the people in the U.S. really want to interact with him, he never gets a break. So for him to be able to come back and say, look, my time off is going to be four hours in the middle of the day. I'm completely available from four in the morning till midnight. You know, you guys can work with me and schedule, but I need this break at this time. It's very difficult to accomplish in an office, but very easy to accomplish in a remote. And then you've got lots of people who have kids and tough schedules and challenges. The people who don't tend to like remote work are people who often they're extroverts that very much get their energy from being in an office and that buzz. And so it's a very interesting, the big, the first lesson kind of aha in that was that it's a very, people self-select very quickly. Most people know I'm going to be successful in this environment or I'm not going to be because I'm very uncomfortable. When people ask me about it, there's lots of our groups that are already remote. So if you think about our sales teams, typically they work from home, they come into the office occasionally. If you look at your engineering teams, often their pockets, if they're not already working from home, they're working for remote offices that are already pretty small. That's the essentially the same thing as working from home. So if you look at later stage companies or more mature companies, they often have the model or some form of the model without officially recognizing it. In Silicon Valley, we often either misunderstand or misattribute the value of culture. What does culture mean to you? And give us an example of the best culture you've been a part of. And what are some of the principles of the culture that you have built at Socrates.ai? So I love your question because culture is such a loosely defined term, right? And, and so to answer your question, we almost have to impose our own personal values on how are we going to answer the question around culture. And so the, the simple example for me is take a healthcare worker. Um, most healthcare workers stay in the healthcare industry because they're so passionate about being able to have real impact on people's lives, right? Whether it's curing pediatric cancer or working in a surgery center, this is a really important part of what makes work successful for them. So you could take a healthcare worker and drop them in what we think of in the Valley as one of the most successful tech companies with one of the best cultures on the planet. And they'll come back and tell you, eh, that's okay. Right. Whereas I can then take them and put them in a healthcare company that has a culture that you and I would think, oh, how do people work here? And they'll come back and tell you it's the greatest experience I've ever had. And so the, the thing that's that's different about culture is that it's so loosely defined. I think the, the thing that I talk most about culture and the and the piece that that I try and and get people to look at differently is that that we should be able to talk to our company and our company should set the culture. So let me give you a simple example. We talk about people leaving managers, right? Not company. And, and let's take a simple example. Let's say that I have tattoos and I have sleeves, right? And I get hired. I'm super excited about the company or I wouldn't have joined. I really like my manager. My manager totally valued me, made me very comfortable with expressing my personal art and opinions and the, and, and, and who I am. But we're so cross-matrixed in large companies today that, that my time with that team or even potentially with that hiring manager is so reduced that it's not unusual or unlikely for me to get put on a team. And that leader may not like tattoos. They may come from the military where you're expected to cover them up. Or it might be a sales leader who really wants a very different dress code for the people that are customer facing. 
And, and so all of a sudden this employee's experience on something that is very important to them, that they've invested a lot of time and money and expression in, the feedback that they're going to get is going to have a huge difference on their motivation, their engagement, their probability to stay. So for instance, if, if they could go to the company and say, what's our official policy on tattoos? And the company said to them, we love your tattoos. We love you. They're an expression of who you are. Okay, now I've got a manager that's asking me to do some things, but I know what the company's viewpoint is and the company culture because the company is setting the culture. Whereas if the company comes back and says, huh, you've got tattoos, how'd you get through recruiting, right? You've made a very different impression on that employee. And today, so much of culture, and you know, whether it's tattoos or blue hair, or, you know, I have psoriasis, it's broken on my face, and I don't want to come into the office, or I'm dyslexic, and you know, every word I spell is wrong. You know, all these things that happen inside of companies that set culture and how managers deal with them actually sets the culture. And that's why it changes and it moves the whole time. So one of the things that I think is super important as companies go forward, just like in this crisis about, you know, all the questions that are coming out of people working from home and the environments that we're in today, companies should take responsibility for those positions. And the, the, the workforce should be able to ask the employee and get a straightforward answer. Because if the company's viewpoint is, I'm sorry, we really don't support tattoos. We really would like to keep them covered. That's perfectly okay. But the employee should know that and not have to manage through different managers and different opinions with different biases and different viewpoints. There should be a constant theme. And, and that's one of the biggest shifts that I think that will happen in culture with companies. And so your core question on, on to answer your question directly, which is my belief is you have to manage the people's strengths. Um, and so the, the important thing about culture is setting the, the guidelines and the tone and then managing the people's strengths. And, and so that's something that we talk a lot about and that we focus on inside of Starbucks. Well said. The workplace is changing rapidly, faster than we could imagine. What's one thing that you think will be commonplace in the workplace, let's say, of even three years from now that today we'd probably consider silly? I think it's two parts, and I don't mean to be trite because, because you know, I think it's easy to to join the bandwagon. I do think keyboards will be obsolete in five years. Um, natural language processing is just getting stronger. I mean, look at the stuff that Google's doing just on their phones and Apple and everybody else. The the voice conversion's really really great. So I think the concept. I think our grandkids will laugh at the fact that we did so much typing. Um, I think the second is you know whether it's freelance economy or whether it's work from home. I think that one of the big things that's going to happen when we get past this experience in this crisis is that companies are going to have learned we can be successful with this. And they're going to learn that it's really it can be extremely valuable for certain sets of the population. And they're going to be more open and supportive because they've had to go invest in this infrastructure anyway. So I think those the, the freelance economy and working remote and managing remote cultures will be something that seemed like a non-issue five years from now, where today they're hot topics of discussion. So as I think about the uh, lessons from Mark Andreessen's thesis treatise on, uh, on, it, on it being time to build, let's, uh, let's take away the conclusion that it's not time to build keyboards, huh? Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, and it's, it's funny, too. I don't think the whole world converts to voice. I mean, if you look at a financial analyst that's doing you know, looking at spreadsheets that are super complex, whether it's an Anaplan or Excel, pick your pick your product. 
I don't know how you do that in voice. And I don't think you should. You're going to need the visualization. You're going to need the models. And so, so I, I don't think that any one medium is going to be predominant unless you have a certain lens. Like consumer, yeah, I think keyboards will go away. You know, I don't know that mouses will, but the visualizations and the pictures and the movies and the YouTube, you know, stuff, all that stuff's going to be there. And we're going to need those visual representations. Um, but yeah, I'm, I think keyboard would be not something that I would be investing a lot in. I think our grandkids will go, QWERTY, huh? What's that? So uh, I know it feels like we're just getting started, but uh, I, we have time for one last question. I got, got to get this one in. Uh, you're, you're a walking Silicon Valley time capsule. What is your advice for a, a younger version of Randy? I think that that's a really interesting question. Um, I think that we could write a whole book on all the things I've done wrong and the things I would do differently. But if I had to pick one, I would say pay close attention to the products that your company is building and the things that they choose to build and not to build and and pay close attention to the things that you built internally with the company that weren't officially products to, to compensate for whatever you're seeing in the market. Because the, the beauty of Silicon Valley is so much that that it's a it's a great place to start a company and build. And so many of those product ideas come from, you know, bigger companies not moving agile and and getting to the market with a product and that creates an opportunity for you personally. Or you had to create products to support the other product that actually turn into really big markets. And, you know, it's simple things like network monitoring and application monitoring. Those were things that we had to build our own tool sets for that, you know, if I'd have been smart, I would have gone and productized them and built a company around them and, and sold them to everybody instead of building our own. So I would say, you know, just always keep in mind and look at the big picture of where's the market and what's the products and where's the opportunity and not be afraid to take those chances. Randy, I've loved this conversation, and I, I hope that uh, as uh, the world unfolds, we get to come back, ha- have you back on another podcast episode, and we'll, we'll, we'll see how our prognostications held up. How's that sound to you? That sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks to everyone for listening. We'll be back next week with another great interview with a leader talking about AI and the future of work.